We return to the book of Job, beginning our reading in chapter 38, verse 39, the last three verses of that chapter, and reading all the way through chapter 40, verse 5. So 38, 39 through 40, verse 5, this is God's holy inspired word from the Old Testament. Give your attention to the reading of it. God's word, Job 38, beginning in verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones grow, become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom have I given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He laughs at the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because of his his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of the stork? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and let, lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. Because God has made her forget wisdom and give her, and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a, like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it far off. 
His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So what's your daily screen time? An hour? Two? Maybe seven? Yeah, this is kind of an issue nowadays as we struggle being too glued to our screens. Or, as you know, we work behind computers. We hardly drive anywhere now without Google Maps. Entertainment comes to us on our phones. A hot topic comes up, and we are keyboard keyboard warriors. And, of course, we post endless pics and videos. And such absorption and fixation to our screens is leaving us a bit anemic. Yeah, we're losing connection with nature, and proper perspective on larger matters is slipping through our fingers. And in many ways, Job has fallen into a similar tunnel vision. His screen was his painful ash heap. His keyboard has been the vindication of his righteousness. And the clouds of narcissism have been blurring his perspective. Well, now that God is addressing Job, the Lord's remedy for Job's screen addiction is simple but profound, as he now tells Job to touch grass. In fact, the Lord guides Job and us through his exotic world so that we can feel the grass between our toes and learn to be quiet. So the Lord is halfway through his first response to Job. And so far, God's monologue has come come as a bit of a surprise. For Job demanded a legal court case to be exonerated. The friends were dogmatic the Lord would not appear to Job, and if he did, then it would be a pervasive condemnation of Job's many sins. Well, the Lord did show, but he wasn't in a judicial mood. God did chide Job for obscuring his counsel or design of the world, and yet he held no court. The Lord did not list off the crimes of Job. He didn't nail him to the wall as a rebel. Rather, the Lord answered Job's many inquiries with many more questions. And the laundry list of questions took us on a tour of God's grand creation. In fact, this divine quiz had a tone of awe and wonder. The tenor of the questions was joyful and gentle. Sure, there was a sternness in God's voice, but it was also draped in gentleness. Moreover, the rhetorical questions interjected more mystery into God's design. For this has been basically the nub of the issue. How does God govern his world? Now, the friends insisted that God rules by retribution, clean and simple. Job countered, no, God's providence is more puzzling and complex than mere retribution. And now the Lord piled on more mysteries and enigmas about his marvelous world. 
Thus the Lord probed, uh, uh, the Lord probed his creation, the ocean, the coming of the dawn, and the constellations of the night sky. Well, God now continues his world tour by questions, but now he transitions from the inanimate to the animate. He moves from the atmospheric to the biological, from the cosmological to the zoological. Thus, the Lord zooms in on some of the bright and beautiful animals of his wide world. And he starts off with the lion, the king predator of the wild. So, Job, can you hunt for the lion? Would you fill the bellies of the pride's cubs? Indeed, the lion is the master hunter, crouching and pouncing from their lairs. And yet the force of this question isn't so much on ability. Technically, a human could shoot a deer and feed it to a lion. We do this in zoos, and some of the ancient kings had personal zoos themselves. Instead, the human and the lion's relationship of old was more adversarial. Heroes boasted of hunting the king of the beast, and lions regularly dined on human flesh. Thus, hunting for a lion strikes the note of the absurd and the unnecessary. Lions are too good at stalking prey to need the aid of a man. Humans are irrelevant to the life of a lion. Lions have no need or dependence upon people, which is precisely the point. We tend to think that the world revolves around us. Without us, the world would fall apart. Job has surely been overly me-focused in his words. And so the Lord marvels at the lion. What a splendid hunter who survives and thrives with no help from image bearers. And the same goes for the raven or the crow. Who feeds the crow when they roam for food, when the baby, baby ravens squawk for nourishment? Who fills their bellies? And the implied answer is certainly the Lord. God feeds the black crow. In fact, the raven is well paired with the lion, for ravens are scavengers. They regularly follow the lion to pick the bones left by the pride. Hence, God nourishes and cares for both the lion and the crow. It's not humans that these animals depend upon, but on God. The good and caring management of Yahweh is lauded here, and the unnecessity of men and women is exposed. When we get too big for our breaches, it's healthy to be reminded that we're not so important. Next, though, the Lord guides us from the predator to the prey, from the lion to the ibex and the deer. Now, an ibex is a mountain goat with long, curled horns. And these spry animals hop and skip on the sheer cliffs of mountains as if it was their dance floor. So, Job, do you know when the ibex breed? Do you watch the doe give birth? What's the gestation period for a deer? What is the birthing season for the ibex? Now, again, these questions aren't just about knowledge. These things aren't unknowable. Now, sure, the ibex and deer are private animals. Their breeding and birthing is rarely witnessed by humans. 
Yet gestation, breeding, and birthing are the classic skills of a herdsman. Shepherds and cowboys manage their herds and flocks by such knowledge. But this is not done for the ibex, which highlights that they are wild and non-domesticated. The no answer to these questions reveals the lack of control of men. We don't farm the ibex. Deer are outside the, our control and craftsmanship. Hence the Lord goes on. The ibex bend and deliver their fawns all by themselves. They're young, mature, and grow strong in the wide open. Their does wean themselves, leave mom and dad, and cling to a buck. From birth to adulthood, the ibex is self-sufficient. More specifically, the Lord sustains them without the involvement of humans. The comely deer, the agile ibex, these need no stinking humans, for they shepherd themselves under the lovely care of the Almighty. And from the ibex, we shift to the wild donkey. Now these are like the wild burrows of Arizona or the onagers of Iran. Yet the Lord asked, who let the burrow go free? Who untied the, the bonds of the onager? Here, it's the freedom of the burrow that is celebrated. No halter fits the burrow. No lead rope ties the walk, wild donkey down. Instead, the Lord made their home in the arid plain. They reside in the salty wasteland. Now, these places are uninhabitable and lethal for humans, but they're the living quarters for the burrows. What a beautiful paradox. The desert land of death is the abode of life for the wild donkey. Likewise, the burrow literally laughs at the tumult of the city. He's not beholden to the shouts of the driver. Now, the city can represent the high point of human culture and society. Man's wisdom and technology constructs the shining city as a refuge for flourishing and advancement. In the city, we tend to think that we are the envy of all. All creatures want to be like us in the city. But this isn't so. The borough laughs at the clamor of our towns. For the city, as you know too well, can be clogged with smog and congestion, drama and stress, and the demands of the master upon the servant. And so the borough laughs at the busyness of the city, for the borough is free to graze on the mountains for every green thing. It has no bills to pay, no annoying boss to heed, and no noise pollution ringing in its ears. Thus, the Lord makes us envy the wild donkey. This is like when you see your cat stretched out on your couch and you think, wouldn't it be nice to be a cat? So also, oh, to be free like the burrow. No job to clock into, no planner to rule your days, but just to be free to wander the mountains, to thrive in solitude and peace. In the desert. Again, the Lord isn't just fascinated with the beauties of the burrows, 
but he is positing that in some ways they have it better than us. As humans created in the image of God, we were made as God's vice regents on earth. Thus, we tend to pat ourselves on the back as the best. We sit on top and everything looks up to us. But this isn't the whole story. We brag about our cities, but the boroughs laugh at us. Keep the bondage of your towns, for we are free. This celebrates the liberty of the wild donkeys and makes us envy it. The laughter of the borough puts human society in its place. Next, though, in this zoo of Yahweh, we come to the exhibit of the wild ox. Now, the technical name for this wild ox is the Auroch, and sadly, this animal is now extinct. But this ox was a large wild cow standing over six feet at the shoulder with horns like the Texas longhorn and as fierce as a Cape buffalo. It was massive and a a massive and terrifying wild cow that refused to be tamed. Thus, the Lord asked, will the Auroch serve you? Will it spend the night at your crib? Can you bind the wild ox with ropes or make it pull the plow to harrow your field? Can you trust the wild ox to bring in your grain, to pull your harvest to the threshing floor? And all the answers are, of course not. This non-domesticated cow cannot be tamed. Its strength is too powerful for us to control. It's too wild for us to trust upon. The wild ox will devour your harvest before it ever brings it in. This delights in the power and self-determination of the wild ox. It stands beyond human control, and it will never bend the knee to us. As you know, cows are one of the classic animals that we have mastered and domesticated. Cowboys are lords of the herd, But not of this cow. This wild ox stands unmoved and immune to our influence. The mysteriousness and wonder of God's animals are awe-inspiring. And from the majestic wild ox, we now move to the ostrich, one of God's zanier creations. Indeed, the ostrich is an oxymoron. A contradiction in terms. Thus, verse 13, it says it flaps its wings wildly, but it doesn't have the pinions and feathers of a stork. Well, no, which means it cannot fly. A flightless bird? How ridiculous. And the absurdity continues. It lays its eggs on the ground, which is horribly careless as some random animal can just step on them. The ostriches also aren't very motherly. She's harsh towards her chicks, and if one dies, she isn't concerned. As it says, God made the ostrich forget wisdom. He gave this bird no understanding. Now, this painting of the ostrich is a little bit more proverbial than it is scientifically precise. In the ancient world, ostriches had the reputation for being bizarre and foolish. And this is the ironic point. For this unmotherly 
and ditzy flightless bird then laughs at the horse and the rider. It rouses itself to flee, and the ostrich speeds past a galloping horse. Now, the average horse has a speed of about 25 miles an hour, but the ostrich runs at 45 miles per hour. This is like the roadrunner and wily coyote. The wily coyote has all these wise, elaborate traps, but the roadrunner speeds right through to safely beep beep. This kooky bird laughs at our slowness like the hare to the tortoise. What a magnificent enigma. We think that our wisdom can do anything, but this dumb bird laughs at us and leaves us and our horse in the dust. But speaking of horses, now the Lord zeroes in on the war steed. And with this, we move from wild animals to the one domesticated beast in this list, the horse. Yet as before, there's a riddle here. For the horse is our servant. We break them, we slap a saddle upon them, and we steer them merely by a bit in their mouth. Things, though, are not always what they seem. Thus the Lord asked, did you give the horse its might? Did you adorn its neck with a mane? No, the Lord did this. Strength and the mane, however, incorporate both function and aesthetic, ability and artistry. In the Lord's hands, he fashioned the horse strong and beautiful, a mane flowing in the wind. This is gorgeous. And yet, this is not your average horse, but it's a war horse. It leaps like a locust. It paws the ground and snorts with terror. It charges to meet the fray of weapons with joy. A quiver rattles on its side, spear and javelin flashing all about. With roar and rage, the horse swallows up the ground. What a profound image of a charging horse or a charging stallion that it swallows up the ground as it rushes into battle. Moreover, it can smell the battle from afar like a mare in heat. At the blast of a trumpet, the horse whinnies for the joy of the war and for bloodshed. Fearlessly, the horse tromps on foes and cuts through the enemy lines. This is a fearsome and awesome depiction of the violent bravery and unmatched power of the war steed, another marvelous creation of the Almighty. And yet, the paradox, and yet there's a paradox. Namely, the paradox is that we ride this equine monster. The wild power of the horse? Have we really tamed this beast? Indeed, the fierceness of the horse exposes that our domestication of it is a thin illusion. Our control of this stallion hangs by a thread, for the very beast we ride can kill us. Our sovereignty of the horse is at best feeble and fragile. Our mastery of the horse isn't so masterful. But after the horse, the Lord shifts back to the wild animals, to the falcon and the vulture. He now pelts Job with more questions of wonderment. 
Does the hawk soar by your understanding? Does the falcon obey your command to nest on high? Well, no, these birds of prey fly high by the Lord's wisdom and orders, and not man's. And what a lofty abode they have. At the summit of, of towering cliffs, they build their nest. The eagles make their homes on the toothy crag. And miles high, the falcon can still spot its prey. Their godlike eyesight can spot a mouse from afar. Likewise, wherever the slain are found, so the vulture is there. The bloody remains of fallen soldiers, the vulture feeds to its chicks. Again, the beauty of God's creation is fronted here, but more poignantly is this last line, they feed on dead humans. Man and woman were created as the lords and ladies of creation, but here they die and become bird feed. The honorable image bearer lays in the dust, rotting as meat for the vultures. Just as the raven followed the lion, so the vulture tracks the war horse to feast after the battle. Hence, by this delightful tour of just a few of God's amazing animals, it is evidence that his world is so much bigger and more vast than us humans. It is true that we alone were created in God's image. The Lord did vest us as his vice regents. But as royalty, we tend to think that the world revolves around us. Everything depends upon us. We control all. But in God's mysterious wisdom, this is not how the principle of our kingship works itself out. Yes, we have the image of God. But lions need us not. The deer flourish and shepherd themselves without our knowledge. Wild burrows, excuse me, laugh at our congested cities. The wild ox is immune to our control. And the absurd folly of the ostrich chuckles at our slowness. The war horse suffers us to ride him, but can easily crush us. And the birds of prey that we rule over will pick our bones in death. The master becomes the food of the servant. And Yahweh is the one who fashioned and cares for all these marvelous animals. The Lord is the chef for the lion and the raven. He is the doula and midwife for the ibex and the ostriches. He beautified the horse with mane and might. Yahweh freed the burrow, and he made stubborn the power of the wild ox. The Lord is the artist behind these zany and terrifying beasts, and he rejoices in what he has made. Likewise, in their respective ways, God made these animals better than us. The hawk sees better. The lion is more a more capable hunter. The burrow is freer. And the ostrich is faster. Therefore, Yahweh wraps up this trek through his non-petting zoo, and he puts it to Job. Shall one who disputes with the Almighty correct him? Let the one who arraigns God answer him. Here, God picks up the legal language of Job, 
Remember, Job wanted to dispute and arraign God in a court of law. He subpoenaed the Lord. And so now the Lord puts the challenge back on Job. God made Job touch grass after a screen addiction. He broadens Job's perspective from his narcissistic tunnel vision, and he asks, what can you say now? Can you, Job, really find fault in my design? Can you solve my riddles? Job insisted that his suffering for nothing exposed something wrong in God's design. His righteousness, his righteous suffering was an unbearable paradox. But now, after the mysterious wonders of God's world, which shows the Lord's care, wisdom, and delight, Job's paradox is not so paradoxical. The enigmatic beauty of God's providence makes Job's agony not seem so strange and definitely not unjust. If Job is so correct, let him highlight God's errors. Thus, it's no surprise that Job bends the knee. He says, I am small, insignificant, lowly. Job is reminded that he's the creature and God is the creator. He is the servant, dependent and needy, while Yahweh is the Lord, self-sufficient and sustainer of all. Job isn't just puny before the Lord, but he is small even before the wild bull and the lion. If wild animals laugh at Job, how much more lofty is the creator? Job's screen time made him feel big and important, too large for his britches. But now his narcissistic perspective has been reoriented. His me focus has been put into place before the majestic beauty of creation and the creator. And rightly, feeling his smallness, Job is refreshed in the fear of the Lord. Know what he does next? He slaps his hand upon his mouth. He spoke once and he will not answer. He uttered twice, but no more. The Lord's gentle humbling and reorienting Job brings Job to a place of silence. And silence can be the ideal place for our piety. For one of our flaws is that we talk too much. We gab too much in our prayers. We chat more than we listen. We talk things to death as if our reasoning is ultimate. And if anything is evident about the book of Job, it's all the talking. Job chattered on. The friends talked and talked, and Elihud would not shut his mouth. And all this talking betrayed arrogance and self-importance. Each character was sure that they understood God's design. I have the answer. Listen to me. The endless chattering boasted of human wisdom. But now, with the words of God, Job is quiet, and profoundly so. This silence is first one of awe and reverence. It is the astonishment of silence where words fail you, before splendor and elegance. Secondly, the silence speaks of humility and teachability. 
The loss of words admit our ignorance and impotence. Such quiet acknowledges that God is wise and we are not. That it's better to listen than to speak and that we know oh so little. Finally, this silence expresses trust. It relies upon God more than ourselves. Silence believes that the Lord is in full control and that he does all things perfectly. This silence is like that of an infant resting quietly upon its mother. Therefore, this silence is what directs us to our Savior. For sure, God is being merciful and gentle with Job here, but he's still putting him in his place. The Lord deliberately wants us to feel small before his wide and wonderful creatures. The lion hunts better than us. The ox can trample us. The horse run over us. The ostrich leaves us in the dust. In many ways, we are one of the more fragile creatures of the Lord. And yet, despite our slow pace and bad eyesight, no matter our weak limbs and clamorous cities, Jesus died for us. Christ did not come to sacrifice himself for the ostrich or the ox. The cross wasn't intended for the raven or the ibex, but it was for you. Christ was not incarnate as a burrow or a deer. He didn't take the form of a lion or a bull. No, he became a man. He took on our full humanity with all its infirmities and limits. We die and become food for crows. Why would God send his son to save us? Surely God has stronger and more beautiful animals to rescue. But in his wisdom and in his love, the father sent the son to lay down his life for you. In this great and awesome world full of enigmas and beauties, God made you the apple of his eye. This is the grace and love by which we are saved. This is the sweetest mystery of all, the gospel of our salvation. And in response to this, we too should learn to be silent. Sure, the gospel fills us with music to sing praises. But before the music begins, we need to be quiet. Before we start talking, we must listen with humility and faith to Christ. Being silent before our Savior and Lord is one of the best places for us. For such silence is us resting peacefully upon Christ and him alone for everything. Sure, there are times to sing and times to pray. When the Lord tells us to sing, we must lift our voice on high. Being quiet during a hymn is not right. But when the Lord hushes us, let us be silent. Indeed, may the silence of faith and the fear of the Lord be regular parts of our life and our piety. In worship, when God speaks, let us hold our peace. 
And when God sends us out into his gorgeous creation and to his zany zoo to touch grass, may we also learn to be quiet. Indeed, let us marvel in the cross of Christ with open ears and silent faith. And then when we stand quietly in the awe of God's creation, let us praise him for all he is, all he does, and his salvation of us. For the Lord who created this great world also purchased your redemption as a free gift. Thus he is our God to worship now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.